Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Today we're talking the Nixon tapes again with specific focus on President Nixon's conversations about diplomacy with the leaders of the Soviet Union. Our guest again is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M Central Texas. He's the nation's foremost expert on the Nixon White House tapes and founder of NixonTapes.org. Luke, welcome back. Thanks, Jonathan. It's good to be back. Much of the Nixon tapes on United States relations with the USSR have to do with the Strategic Arms Limitation Agreement, um, or SALT. Uh, Why was achieving such an agreement important for the United States and for the Soviet Union as well? Well, I think it was important for the Nixon administration because uh, successive presidents and and American governments have been trying for years. Uh, I mean, arms limitations talks and uh, reduction talks that went back to the middle of the 1950s in the Eisenhower years, I think shortly after, uh, I think the the perception then was after the death of Stalin in in late 1953, there was a a chance for a, a new relationship possibly. So talks began in the 1950s in the middle of the Eisenhower administration, and you know they they started. There were fits and starts. Uh, they, you know there was progress made, and then for one reason or another, um, it always uh, it always faltered, and a lot of times it was over inspection issues and verification. Uh, so I think it, we tried it for many many years uh, under successive Russian and, and American leaders, and so I think there was. Um, uh, a real interest in for Nixon to be the one to actually get something done. Why all of a sudden was there a breakthrough by the, or why did the Nixon administration think there would be a breakthrough by the 1970s? Well, I mean, there, there's a variety of factors. Um, by the by, the early 70s, the I guess the 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 most basic answer, uh, although it's a complicated one, is that the 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 power structure of the world had shifted. Uh, I think the U.S. was more willing to make a deal uh, after the long experience of Vietnam. Um, certainly, with the, the Nixon doctrine behind it, uh, you know, the idea as it would be applied to U.S.-Soviet relations is that the U.S. would remain engaged and active in the world, but in the future it would be engaged and active at a much more calculated level. So I, I think you know a, a treaty with the, the Russians was part of the Nixon doctrine. I think it fit with the U.S. experience following the long war in Vietnam. Uh, I think also um, that the Russians had learned something, and it had been almost 25 years since the end of the war, uh, World War II, and uh, the cost of an arms race was very expensive for both sides, both the American side and the Russian side. And so, and we we had learned that uh, the Russians and the Chinese hadn't gotten very uh, well along in the in the 60s. The Chinese themselves were going through a, a terrible culture revolution. So I think the the experiences of all these nations, I think Nixon believed the timing was right for a fresh start. In Nixon and Kissinger's mind, did it necessarily mean that the Soviets weren't going to be um, adventurous? I mean, for example. The USSR wanted to uh, dominate the Warsaw Pact. They even wanted to dominate China. That's the re- that's one of the reasons why they were having such bad relationship uh, with China is because they had a dispute on their uh, on their uh, Usuri uh, River, uh, their eastern border with uh, their eastern border with uh, China. Um, they tried to keep countries ideologically in line. You see the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Um, how do you reconcile you know this desire for better relations with 
um, the United States um, and, and vice versa with Brezhnev's doctrine wanting to dominate the, the Soviet world? Well, I think that's the idea of detente. I mean, I think detente is a, a nuanced enough concept. You know, in, in its simplest form, it's a, it's a French word uh, that basically means, uh, it's a noun that kind of means a, a lessening of tensions. Um, and, you know, I think what Nixon and Kissinger realized was that, it, you know, the idea of pursuing some kind of an agreement with the Russians didn't mean that we didn't have political differences. We had great differences. Uh, I don't think we were going to make any progress at all if we were going to convince the Russians to become capitalists or for them to convince uh, us to become communist. I think detente was a, a complicated, nuanced, layered concept that really what we were trying to do is we were trying to learn to live with each other without killing each other. And so I think that's really what the point was. So it wasn't incompatible that Brezhnev could, or that Brezhnev could both, for example, order the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, but also make uh, some kind of an agreement to reduce tensions with the United States. Uh, I think for the Soviets, the interest was, uh, and, and why these ideas were not incompatible, was making an agreement with your arch enemy was prestigious. It was prestigious for the U.S. and it was prestigious for the Soviet Union, um, each of whom led a, a block of countries during the Cold War, or at least uh, various nations looked up to, to uh, either the Americans or the Russians. And so to make an agreement with the other for these other countries meant that you were in charge, you were in a, an undisputed leader of your side or your pact, uh, and it, it was most of all prestigious. It means you mattered in the world. So even just beyond, you know, we haven't even talked about the potential substance of any agreement. Just the idea that you were important enough to make an agreement with the leader of the other side meant that you were important. You were worth talking to. Uh, so I think both for your own side and for recognition by the other side, there, there were lots of reasons to at least have the appearance of making an agreement. That, that coexistence, that learning to live with each other and, and being important, um, you know, to be the big players in the world. Does that does that accurately af, uh, reflect a um, the foreign policy uh, grand strategy of the Nixon administration? Or was that was that more of a means to an end? Well, I I think it changes. I mean, even in, in the Soviet side, I think on both sides, you know, there's a uh, there's a continuum of thought. I mean, in, in both the, the American and in the Soviet governments at any given time. There's a continuum from uh, those who are more in favor of detente concepts to those who are really more hardliners. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, we have all these stories of the Cold War. You have, um, you know, take the Cuban Missile Crisis, where President Kennedy is responding to the Soviet placement of, uh, I mean, everything from uh, missiles to strategic, tactical and other things placed directly in Cuba from Soviet ships. Um, and, you know, the, the communications, the cables being received from the Soviet Union and, uh, to the United States, some have a very hard line, some have a very soft line, and it's almost inconceivable to think that these could be written by the same person. So I think there, there's complexity in the relationship between the two sides, but there's complexity on each of the sides uh, that, that evolves over time. Uh, so I think, you know, for the Nixon administration, uh, 
this is someone, President Nixon, who was a foreign policy president. It's not to say he didn't have an interest in domestic policy. There are plenty of tapes where he really gets into the weeds on domestic policy. Um, you know, war on cancer is a good example. Um, but he was always known as a foreign policy president. He was eight years uh, as Eisenhower's vice president, another foreign policy president. He uh, he ran in 1960 with Henry Cabot Lodge on foreign policy credentials. He ran in 68 on the same when a major foreign policy issue, the Vietnam War, kind of defined that year and, and that campaign. So I think for him, uh, it was only natural that he was going to try to have some kind of breakthrough in his area of strength, where, which were subjects that he knew the most about. Let's listen to the first audio. Uh, we're going to listen to a couple of audios uh, through the course of this uh, podcast, but let's listen to the first audio of April 23rd, 1971. Um, this is almost a year, or this is more than a year before the uh, summit in 1972. And this is President Nixon, uh, the Chief of Staff of H.R. Bob Holloman, and Dr. Henry Kissinger in the Oval Office talking about the possibility of a summit in Russia. Oh, they're enthusiastic. They don't you realize what a tremendous thing it is for us, first American president in the Soviet Union. But we had four new members in the Politburo. I try. He said, you have only one man to convince. I had to talk to all three. Uh, he said, to sell this was almost impossible. That I even believe. Because on this one, they have yielded 98%. They practically accepted our positions on the assault. They're, they're giving us a hell of a lot more than... Uh, what is that? Well, that's where we start from here, but about the sole position. So well, they, they, well, that we can settle next week. We could publish the exchange of letters within a week. The only point is this, Mr. President, what they want, the only disputed point, there are some other mistakes, which I'll explain to you in a minute, but the disputed point is on the limitation Moscow against Washington, which will drive Scoop Jackson right up a wall. And uh, on the other hand, the Greenland said that Was the that was Nixon, um, Kissinger, and um, Chief of Staff Bob Haldeman on April 20th, 1971. Let's unpack this conversation uh, a little bit. Um, first, why was an American president visiting Moscow so important 
uh, to the Soviet Union, as Dr. Kissinger indicated? Oh, I think uh, even more than the substance, I think it was uh, image and prestige. I think to have an American president in the, in the Kremlin and to have the image of that broadcast around the world, I think was, was good for the image of the Soviet Union. It also allowed um, on the Soviet side in the Eastern Bloc for those nations to see that if you wanted to get something done, you went through Moscow, that Moscow was capable of getting something done with the United States that was actually constructive. So I think it was good as a leader of its bloc. I think, uh, I think Moscow, just like the United States, wanted to be seen as not just a world leader, but a respectable world leader. And when you sat down and made these kinds of agreements, it was it made you look respectable. So I think image, um, you know, it was the most important thing, even more so than the substance of the agreement. Let's talk a little bit about the economics uh, behind the missile system. Kissinger missile systems. Kissinger touches touches upon this a little bit. Um, he refers to a conversation he had with Soviet Ambassador Anatoly uh, Dobrynin about protection of U.S. missiles versus the um, versus on the Russian side, their own population, and about the freezing um, of Russian of Russia's offensive weapons. Um, could you take us through what was at stake? Um, what are the what are the general economics um, regarding our missile systems, and what did the U.S. want to achieve substantively versus the Russians, and what could they come to an agreement? Uh, what could they come to an agreement on? Well, so, you know, this conversation is just one of many when, um, I mean, there might be as many as 50, where Nixon and Kissinger um, get pretty far into the weeds talking about offensive weapons, uh, defensive weapons, and the types that they like to limit or um, inspect or, uh, or make ultimately a part of this agreement. I think here what you have uh, Henry Kissinger saying and kind of the the key line in that uh, tape segment that you played um, is really, you know, if they freeze their offensive weapons, which they've agreed to do, then we can agree to this. And so I think offensive weapons were the things that were scary. Those are the things you really wanted to limit. I mean, no Americans, certainly not Nixon and Kissinger on these tapes, ever thought that that Americans would use offensive weapons against the Russians. Um, so, it, and of course, every everyone believes that uh, the other side has a legitimate right to self-defense. So the very concept of defensive weapons weren't, wasn't really threatening. Uh, if they were attacked, of course, they could defend themselves. We had no purpose of chance uh, of using our offensive weapons. Uh, so our concern primarily is their offensive weapons. Those were the things, you know, that that was really the thing that that Nixon and Kissinger could use to sell this agreement to Congress. That was the key chip to tell the American people, uh, look, you know, we finally got a, a bona fide arms agreement passed. So I, I think it was really the focus was on the offensive weapons. I think the Americans were concerned about their cities being struck four or five thousand miles away from Europe. Europeans lived in fear of the Soviet Union, of their cities being hit by, by uh, Russian missiles. So I think the, the focus was really on those offensive weapons. Again, um, as we talked on the last podcast, the idea of secrecy uh, comes into play. Um, there's a secret channel established between Kissinger and Anatoly Dobrynin early in the administration. Um, and Nixon and Kissinger are debating amongst themselves um, if there is going to be a summit that they publish uh, an exchange of letters and the proper timing of that uh, publication. 
um, or or even the exchange. Um, what did Dobrynin? What did the Dobrynin channel firstly try to accomplish, and why was um, why was timing on why was timing so important? The uh, general well, I, idea I think, of timing. Yeah, I, I think the the first thing I would say is. You know, I think maybe there's a little bit too much of an emphasis on secrecy and and these so-called back channels that are used during the Nixon administration. I mean, every administration uses back channels. I mean, the the idea of a back channel was just simply that um, you know you had formal channels and you had informal channels, and a back channel could be as simply as you know rather than following exact protocol, maybe your ambassador goes in and talks quietly to a foreign minister or the other of another nation. I mean, there's all kinds of back channels. Now, I think it is true that that because Nixon and Kissinger were engaged in so many simultaneous um, negotiations, in particular with uh, adversaries and even with nations that we had no diplomatic relations, there was a greater emphasis on secrecy and the use of back channels. Um, it, it, you know, in the case of Dobrynin, um, you know, the, uh, an informal channel or a back channel or a secret channel um, had a number of uh, practical uses. Um, first of all, you could communicate directly, which means you could go around the, the State Department or you could go around the, the Pentagon and you could talk directly. You could send a message directly to the Russians and you could receive their direct response. So I think, and by doing that, secondly, you limited the drastically limited the number of eyeballs that saw these messages, which reduced the chances of leaks and it reduced people who really don't need to know about the substance of these messages ever learning about them. Um, and then I think a third thing is because, uh, you know, there are lots of other negotiations going on at this time with the Chinese, with the Vietnamese, and so it, it kept things private, you know, just between the United States and, and the Russians at a time when, you know, the U.S. was also trying to set up a summit with China. Um, and so a, a direct channel uh, reduced the amount of time it took to send a message, uh, to receive a response. Uh, so I think that you know there were a number of reasons why having a, a direct line, so to speak, uh, with the Russians was very attractive to the Nixon White House. And they're discussing here a summit in some September of 1971. Uh, why didn't this come to pass? Well, I, I mean that's complicated. Um, you know, if, first of all, I think we've always got to realize what we don't know. Um, there are there are very few records from. Um, uh, the main archive in Moscow, which is attached to the Ministry of Defense, that have been released. It's one of the most secretive archives you, you can do research at anywhere in the world. It's very difficult to get in. It's very difficult to get new records out of them. So I've, I've tried several times, only with very modest success, uh, to get much of anything out of there in terms of substance. Uh, so, you know, there's a whole other side of this that we don't know as well uh, as we do our side. And even on our side, a lot of records are still uh, have not been declassified yet. But, you know, I would say my, my best guess is, you know, the summer of 71 is really when things took off. Uh, in July, uh, Kissinger got a signal from the Chinese that it was going to be possible to, to, for Nixon to visit China uh, or, you know, within a, a, a day to be determined. Nixon made an announcement on, on live national television on, on July 15th that he would, in fact, visit China. Uh, and so I think that definitely rattled the Soviets a little bit. But I think even leading up to that, they, they were simply slow to commit. If they had committed, say, earlier in 71, that this is the date that we'd like to have the summit in Moscow, 
Uh, and it, at least so far, the terms had, had gone well in terms of the, the arms limitation uh, negotiations. I think probably the Americans would have accepted and said, yep, we'll be there on uh, July 15th or August 15th or whenever it was. But as soon as um, the Soviets detected that the Americans were trying to move more aggressively with China and that there was an opportunity there, then Nixon announced his visit. I think that really caused uh, the Soviets to, to, uh, uh, to, to push off the commitment. Uh, instead, the Soviets made an agreement um, in the middle of August with India, which is a kind of treaty of friendship and amity with India, which at the time was supposed to be uh, on a, you know, a part of the, uh, uh, the countries that were not aligned with either the Soviet side or, or the American side. So I think once you know, the opportunity of China moves in there, the Soviets back off, and they do ultimately still commit to a summit and offer a summit in 1972. Uh, but I think the primary reason why there wasn't a Soviet summit in 71 is because they, they, they weren't able to commit early enough. Looking at this counterfactually, do you think if, they, if, if China didn't, the China Initiative didn't jump ahead of the Soviet desire for a summit, would that have been strategically more beneficial for Soviet leaders? That, that's that's fascinating to think about, um, because I think the records that have been released with the Chinese show the Chinese really wanted to be number one and wanted to have a relationship um, in their own right and not just because they were also concerned about what the Soviets were doing. I, I think the sequence, as it turned out, uh, it created the maximum possible momentum and inertia uh, the way they turned out. Uh, you know, if, if the Russians had gone first, in my my view, uh, the the impact of the China visit would have been much less, uh, because we you know one agreement had already been made. The Soviets would already have been posturing as Nixon was on his way to China. I think going to China was just such a shock when it occurred first. Uh, it still would have been a big deal had it come after Moscow. Uh, but I think doing doing things the way they ended up uh, provided maximum shock to the world, uh, but also maximum shock to the Soviets, and probably end up getting um, uh, Kissinger and Nixon uh, a better salt agreement and a better rela- bilateral um, relationship than they would have had 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 China come later. Kissinger says that the disputed point um, regarding um, salt was on limitation. Um, which would drive Senator Scoop Jackson um, of Washington, a Democrat from Washington, right up a wall, um, quote unquote. Um, for, audi- for our audience who doesn't know, uh, who don't know, who is Scoop Jackson? Um, what, what was his uh, position? And why were Nixon and Kissinger talking about him? Well, Scoop Jackson, uh, Scoop was his nickname. Um, his, um, his Henry Jackson, Henry Scoop Jackson as you said, a, a Democrat from Washington. Um, but he, he was kind of a hard line, um, a hard liner against the Nixon White House, against the concept of detente. Um, he, and he was a hard liner in a couple ways. He was a hard liner in the sense that he thought the U.S. was giving up too much to the Soviets and giving it up unnecessarily, uh, that the United States was making the majority of the concessions and we weren't getting all that much from the Soviet Union. He was a great critic more broadly of detente. And he was also a, a critic of, of um, SALT. And um, as Kissinger points out in the conversation, because Jackson really emphasized uh, human rights issues. 
And in particular, he did not think that Nixon and Kissinger, uh, in the course of negotiations with the Soviets, were pressing the Soviets nearly as much on, on human rights issues. And by that, I mean um, by getting better terms for better treatment of dissidents within the Soviet Union, more favorable terms uh, for uh, potential immigrants and uh, immigration visas, in particular later when you get to the Jackson, Jackson-Bannock amendments in the mid, sort of mid-70s, the idea of increasing um, those who want to, the, the quotas of those who want to leave the Soviet Union voluntarily, in particular um, uh, immigrants to Israel and Jewish immigrants. So, um, you know, so Jackson was a, a real critic of detente, not just of, of Nixon and Kissinger, uh, but, but all the way through from, from uh, Johnson, uh, Nixon, Ford, and even under Carter. Uh, of uh, broader detente issues, and so Kissinger, when Kissinger is saying that uh, uh, that these the negotiations will drive Scoop Jackson right up a wall, um, yeah, I think what he he was kind of uh, uh, he was being kind of facetious in a sense, because uh, he, by by that he means uh, anything that suggests the U the U S is either giving something up. Or that that perhaps the negotiations are actually succeeding and they're getting something from the Soviets in this case on limitation uh, might actually prove Jackson wrong. So Jackson was a reliable critic of detente and a kind of conscience and leader among those Democrats and Republicans who were critics of detente right through the 1970s. Let's let's listen to the next call uh, a month later. This is May 10th, 1971, um, or or the next audio. Uh, this is with Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, they are clearly irritated uh, with the leaders of the Soviet Union. Going on television with 
beyond the point which we've already given them in my channel, because that will just encourage them to withdraw it. That was President Nixon and his national security advisor, Dr. Henry Kissinger, on May 10th, 1971. Um, Luke, why do you think Nixon and Kissinger think we're being whipsawed by the Soviets? Well, there, there was a couple things going on. Uh, you know, the, the, basically the idea of being whipsawed is that you're being kind of squeezed on both sides. And so, you know, this conversation segment uh, shows at least two ways the Soviets were doing this. I think the first way was the Soviets were obviously pretty well attuned to detente's left-wing critics, but also to its right-wing critics. And they were doing things to irritate both sides, who were then criticizing these negotiations uh, being conducted by Nixon and Kissinger as they were going on. So there was, there was that issue. And then there were also other issues that are being negotiated, such as he mentions Berlin, the Berlin, what becomes the Berlin Agreement or the Quadripartite Agreement, which is uh, signed in September of that year, 1971. Uh, so what they're suggesting here in this conversation is that as the Soviets are starting to slow down and sort of not give us what we want as it comes to what becomes SALT, uh, then, well, we'll slow things down on the Berlin Agreement, which is something that the Soviets want. And so it's kind of this moving back and forth um, and that if you know in one area concessions are made, it's creating expectations for concessions in other areas. One speeds up, one slows down, and so I think what Nixon and Kissinger are doing, in a sense, are, are talking about this concept of linkage that they're often associated with, which is sort of you know the the the, the various uh, simultaneous negotiations will sort of move forward together, and let's be aware of what's happening in one while we're talking about another. Nixon says that the Russians are playing a strict political game and they don't want Nixon. Um, were the Russians hoping to negotiate with a new administration? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, uh, this is 1971. Um, now, as we sit today and look back, we see that Nixon won in, in a historic landslide in 72. But in 71, it didn't look so good for him. His poll ratings were down. Uh, at one point in the spring, he says to Kissinger he might not even run in 72, that he didn't want to be uh, the second president, referring the first being Johnson, to, uh, to be someone who was sort of chased out of office by Vietnam. Um, so things didn't look so good. So maybe that was a realistic possibility for the Soviets. Oh, I remember one time I talked to um, Sergei Khrushchev, who's Nikita Khrushchev's son. Um, I think it, it speaks volumes that he's decided to, to emigrate to the United States and live out his remaining years here as opposed to Russia. Uh, but he was, he was telling me one time um, how the, the Russians were always against Nixon. They were, they were for Kennedy, not Nixon in 60. They, they, only probably after 72 did they realize that, that they, Nixon was someone they could work with. And I remember he told me, he said he thought that was a big mistake, including a mistake by his father. He said, because Nixon turned out, in his words, to be a pretty good politician. And I think by that he means someone you could actually work with and negotiate and would keep, keep his word when he made an agreement. So I, I think, you know, the idea of playing a strict political game, I think what Nixon's saying is that the Soviets are not really sincere about getting anything done. They're just kind of speaking out of both sides of their mouth at the same time. Um, you know, I think maybe they did uh, hope to, to have to negotiate with somebody else. I think they, in, in 60, they favored Kennedy, and they said that publicly. 
In 68, I think they favored uh, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic nominee, and they really didn't hide their preference there. Um, It was too early yet in 71 to figure out who was going to run in 72, uh, but I do know that um, Senator McGovern, who did become um, uh, Nixon's rival in 72, the Democratic nominee, did meet with um, the North Vietnamese and the Soviets, uh, and probably they, they prefer, would have preferred him too. Uh, they, they seemed to be more compatible with Democrats and, and thought they would be uh, less hardline anti-communist. So I, I think that was really the question Nixon was asking is, hey, are these guys serious about getting something done or not? Let's listen to the next tape. This is on March 30th, 1972. Uh, this is a month after the summit with China in February. Um, and this is also right around the spring offensive of the North Vietnamese um, on the South. And one month, bef- one month before the uh, Soviet summit in May of 1972. So a real critical point. Um, so let me play this right now. That was Nixon and Kissinger uh, on March 30th, 1972. Uh, Kissinger says in the audio that things are going beautifully on salt. Uh, why did he feel the United States was getting its way? Well, I think when you, when you listen to this particular conversation segment and you compare it to some of the other ones we've listened to and some of the other ones that are on the tapes, 
I mean, the, the tone of their conversation is totally different. Uh, I, mean, I mean, at this point, they've got a commitment from China for a, for a summit. Uh, and, you know, they still wanted an agreement with the Soviets. They wanted a summit with the Soviets. But the pressure, result, the pressure for results is much lower at this point. Uh, once the Chinese take off, you know, the Soviets become more, the, the, the relationship with the Chinese takes off, the, the Soviets become more standoffish. The pressure for the U.S. to achieve something, anything, um, you know, in the coming year is, is much lessened because they, they, they're fairly, the, the, Nixon and Kissinger are fairly confident that things with China are moving forward. So I think, you know, they're much less tense in the conversation. They're much less focused on details. They're, they're talking about the big picture. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a dramatic change from just, say, six months earlier. Why do Nixon and Kissinger want to, at least in the meantime, to have that matters play out very quietly uh, on SALT? Oh, I think at least for a couple reasons that come to mind, um, uh, it's no longer the big deal. Uh, The news is all about China. Uh, And almost anything you do with China to makes news, it's, it's it's, it's totally new. Uh, with you know to keep salt kind of on the back burner, uh, first of all, it's highly technical. People don't understand it as well. It'll be more kind of nitpicked, is what Nixon and Kissinger's view were in terms of what did we really get from this? What did we really really lose from this? It just didn't have the the level of excitement. It didn't have the psycho- psychological shift uh, that uh, the new relationship with China had. So I think they kind of move salt to the back burner, thinking, well, it, it'll happen. Uh, and even if it, it doesn't or doesn't for a while, um, you know, we're really focused on, on China right now. So I think, you know, it just becomes a priority, but it, it no longer has to be the number one priority for the Nixon White House because they've got other things to work on. Nixon and Kissinger talk about the value of Russia and China in the campaign, especially the optics, you know, the, the playing out of the uh, of these trips uh, on television, um, the Vietnam War was winding down at this period, still raging, but 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 winding down. Our troop levels were kept going down. The end of the draft uh, was near. Um, why did they think that foreign policy would be would be so valuable to be front and center in the nineteen seventy two presidential campaign? Oh, I think once the the they. Nixon and Kissinger knew the China summit was going to be scheduled, even before they knew when it was. Uh, I think that caused an enormous shift in policy and and American politics. It's funny hearing Kissinger talk about the, the, you know, his hope that the summit with China would be scheduled in June 72, just before the Democratic Convention, obviously with an eye toward dominating the news as opposed to letting Democrats dominate the news. I think that, in a way, shows us, as we listen to this today, uh, that Nixon and Kissinger, um, you know, there, there are limits. You know, even, even they, at their level, don't call all the shots. You know, the Chinese ha- have a say here, too, in terms of how this, how this all unfolds. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the tapes later in 72, between Nixon and Kissinger, they refer to it as three for three, that that was the focus uh, the, the three major foreign policy um, negotiations uh, to end the Vietnam War, detente with the Soviets, and as it was called, rapprochement, a new relationship uh, with China, were the three major things 
They were all being worked on simultaneously in 72, and it was a scheduling of that of one of them, the, the, the Chinese summit, even before Nixon ever stepped foot in Beijing, that caused the shift. Uh, they, they believed, both in the negotiations to end the war, but also with the Soviets, uh, it was that, that first one of what became the three for three, you know, the Chinese summit provided the opportunity for this tremendous breakthrough year, which also happened to be presidential election year, which also happened to be all issues that played to Nixon's strengths, uh, which would, of course, allow him to dominate the news and would allow him to, uh, 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 while looking like a great world leader, uh, would, would make him look like a great national leader just before Americans went to the polls. Our guest today is Luke Nichter, professor of history at Texas A&M University, Central Texas. Our topic was the Nixon White House taping system as it pertains to United States relations with the USSR in the Nixon era. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jonathan. Please check back for future podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. This is Jonathan Mavroidis signing off.